Turn to John chapter 18. We're going to continue our series, That You May Believe, walking through the book of John. That is the purpose of this gospel, and that is the purpose of this series, because John, who wrote this gospel, the apostle John, the disciple of John, one of the inner three of Jesus' disciples writes this gospel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and gives us that purpose, that I, that you, would continue to believe that Jesus is not only the Savior of our salvation, but also the one we look to in, in every circumstance of our lives. Now we come to John 18, which is Jesus in the garden. And if you're following along on our reading plan, you can access on our website or Maybe you haven't grabbed one, you can grab one at our Welcome Center. You'll notice there's a lot of different subject matter in John 18, right? There's the garden passage, uh, Jesus uh, faces um, Caiaphas and is questioned by the high priests, high priest, and, and you see that. You see Peter denying Jesus. You see Jesus before Pilate. You see Jesus being introduced in front of the crowds and Pilate asking, who do you want, Barabbas or Jesus? There's a lot that's going on in John 18. So if you already read this passage of scripture or discussed it in your life group, you're like, well, what are we going to focus on? And I just believe, as I looked at this chapter, that the Lord wants us to peer into the garden, so to speak, and see what Jesus does there. So look at verses one and two. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, what words? The words of John 17 that Jesus gave his disciples in the upper room. He went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden with which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Now, when I was reading through John 18 this week, this struck me, I never saw this before, that this was a place that Jesus often went to. I don't know about you, but for whatever reason in my mind, I was like, okay, Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane, and for whatever reason, just maybe my own rationale, I always viewed it as a new place that Jesus went, but Jesus had been here many, many times. So even Judas, in where do we find Jesus, would have said, well, he oftentimes prays in the garden, so that will be a spot we should go and look for him. When I was in Israel a few years, I had the privilege of going to the Garden of Gethsemane, and so, I don't know about you, but I'm a visual person, and so there's a couple pictures on the screen of the garden. Just Let me just make mention of this picture. For whatever reason, I don't know why, but when I went to Israel, the thing that struck me the most was how close everything is that we find in the Gospels in proximity. And then I'm like, well, duh, nobody drove anywhere. They walked everywhere. So maybe I'm just a little behind than you, but that, that just struck me. But what I thought was interesting is when we were walking around in that garden, how close it was to those old walls of Jerusalem. And even though that temple that would have existed during Jesus' time obviously had been destroyed, Jesus would have most likely been able to see that temple as he prayed in that garden. Being reminded of the purpose that he was about to fulfill. You know what also is interesting is you walk around in that garden of Gethsemane and what was told to us that I thought was just shocking was that many of those trees that you see in the garden today existed all the way back to the time of Jesus, which is just unbelievable. 
But what we're gonna do this morning that's a little bit different than what we've done in times past is we're gonna jump to some other, to the other gospels that give us great insight into what happens with Jesus in the garden. See, if, you, if you've read John 18, what you find is Jesus enters the garden, but John doesn't really spend a lot of time about with Jesus praying in the garden, but jumps straight to when Judas shows up with the soldiers and with the other religious elite and confront Jesus. So all that to say that a lot happens between verse one and verse two of John 18 that I want us to spend some time on today. Because what we're gonna see in this passage of scriptures or passages of scripture is the unspeakable weight that Jesus endured in this garden. We're gonna see in a way that I don't believe any other passage describes to really see the humanity of Jesus. I mean, we see Jesus in the manger and the Christmas stories, and we see Jesus in the temple as a young boy, and it says he grew in wisdom and stature as a man. We see times that Jesus is hungry. We see times that Jesus is tired, but no other event that takes place in Jesus' earthly ministry demonstrates his humanity. See, Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. I'm gonna give you a theological term that's a $100 word so you can sound intelligent when you talk to your friends today about what you talked about in church, okay? So I'm gonna help you out. The theological term for being 100% God and 100% man is called the hypostatic union. Say that with me. Hypostatic union. That's all that means. 100% God, 100% man. And though we will never understand how that's a reality What just touched me this week is being reminded of the humanity of Jesus and what he endured and him wrestling with the reality that was facing him. And it's such an example for us this morning that when we are called by God to do something, Satan is going to throw his best at us to thwart us fulfilling that purpose. But thanks be to God in this story that we also see that though Satan throws his worst at us, God also will respond with his very best. And Romans 5 says where sin abounds, grace does all the more. Here's the idea that I want you to get today as we look at these various accounts of the Garden of Gethsemane is this, that Jesus is inviting you to learn how to endure the Gethsemanes of your life. And when I say that, let me just be clear, in no way am I putting on the same plane whatever Gethsemanes, and I'll define that here in a moment, of life we are enduring on the same plane of what Jesus endured for you and for me. But nevertheless, I think there's great lessons that we can learn about how do we respond to the Gethsemanes of life. Let me define that. Gethsemanes of life meaning this, the overwhelming circumstances that are pressing on your soul. You know what I've become more and more aware of, and it's not that it didn't always exist. It's just something that God is continually growing in me 
is to be mindful that when we gather together here on a Sunday morning, the vast majority of us that walk into those doors are experiencing Gethsemanes of life. We smile, we shake hands, we ask how you're doing, we respond we're doing great, we get our cup of coffee, we shake hands, we talk, but underneath that veneer, we are struggling people. So what do we do with that? Do we pretend? Do we manage? Do we settle? Because I believe today, as we look at these verses, these passages, Jesus is saying, I want you to invite you to sit with me, to come to that figurative table, and I want to show you how I endured one of the most stressful times in my life, and I want you to learn from me. I put myself through that so that you would not feel like you're alone. I put myself through that so that I could give you an example how to experience the same victory that I experienced, that I've accomplished for you, so that you can live in that. See, here's the title of the message this morning, How to Endure the Gethsemanes of Life. The word Gethsemane actually means oil press. Because the Garden of Gethsemane, they would harvest olives from these trees. And that's where they would press out and press down those olives to create that olive oil. So how do we endure the Gethsemanes of life? Well, I believe Jesus gives us three ways. Now turn to Matthew 26. Keep your finger in John 18. We'll end up in John 18 today, but I want to start in Matthew 26 in Matthew's account of this garden. Look at verses 36 through 38. It says, then Jesus went with them, his disciples, to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him, Jesus took with him who? Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. So Peter, James, and John. Those three disciples that evidently needed extra investment from Jesus. It wasn't that he favored those three over the other eight. Evidently, they just needed some more time. And look at what it says about Jesus. Matthew records, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. But look at what Jesus says to Peter, James, and John. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Those two words, very sorrowful and troubled literally mean extreme anguish. Anguish. These words are not used often in the New Testament. But it gets across the deep anguish, the deep emotional pain that Jesus was experiencing. And then Jesus says as well that I'm so sorrowful, I'm very sorrowful even to death. That idea has the is talking about that Jesus is saying, not Matthew's describing, Jesus is saying that he's not sure if he has the strength to go on. Remember when I said 
And when we see Jesus in this garden, we see in a greater way than anywhere else in the New Testament the humanity of Jesus. So what's the first way Jesus shows us how to endure our Gethsemanes of life? Here's the first way. Be vulnerable with God and others. What does that mean? That means admitting to God and others that you are too weak to endure these circumstances on your own. See, endurance in the Gethsemanes of life, you know where that begins? It begins with honesty. That's where it begins. That's where endurance starts to do its work. It's when we're honest with what we're feeling. It's when we're honest about where we're struggling. It's us being honest and admitting, I'm weak right now. Now think about this. Jesus took Peter, James, and John and allowed them to experience in a more intimate way some things that the other disciples didn't get to experience. And it's not a matter that Peter, James, and John were better than the other eight in this passage of scripture or the other nine earlier in in Jesus' ministry because I'm including Judas in that nine. But for whatever reason, Jesus needed to invest more into Peter, James, and John. And think back to Matthew 17. You're like, well, what's Matthew 17? I don't expect you to remember that off the top of your head. That's the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, the same disciples that Jesus asked to pray with them in a more intimate way. He takes them up to the mountain. And what do they see on that Mount of Transfiguration? They see all of Jesus' glory that they can handle. They see Jesus in a whole new light. They see all of his glory. They see him communicating with Moses and Elijah. So much so that when they come down from that mountain, they want to build something that gives glory to what they saw of Jesus' glory. You know what I've found in my life? I don't have much of a problem telling you about a time of glory in my life. Oh, let me tell you a story about how God provided this and how amazing it worked out. Let me tell you a time that God provided for my kids in this situation. Let me tell you about that moment of glory. Let me tell you about a position that I received and, and my name was, and I'm not, this is not an actual thing, but I'm just giving scenarios. My name was, was amongst a, a bunch of different resumes and, and look at how God worked it out. Let me tell you about the raise that I got from last year to this year. Let me tell you about the person that I just married and how our story and how God all worked it out. We have no problem telling other people about glorious moments in our life. But I think it's so interesting that the same people that Jesus took up on a mountain to see all of his glory are the same three disciples that Jesus showed all of his sorrow. I'm gonna invite you in, Peter, James, and John, to see me in a way so that you would understand that I am God. So much so that you want to memorialize that and how awesome that is. But I also want you to see that I've allowed myself to be a man 
and I'm admitting right now that I'm not sure I have the strength to do this. And we sometimes struggle with even saying that because we want to emphasize Jesus' deity because we don't want to be doctrinally incorrect, and that is a good desire, but to the expense of his humanity. And what I am struck with here is that Jesus just doesn't stop with his disciples to see how awesome he is. But he also shares with his disciples how weak he is. You know what I've learned in my life? That there is no shame in showing your sorrow. No shame. That's a thing you maybe haven't learned yet. And God out of his grace is going to teach you. Because he's taught me, he is teaching me, and he will teach me. Because what I've found in my life is when I take opportunity to be transparent and vulnerable with those that God has provided around me who I know love me, who I know are, want to care for me, and I express those things out loud, you know what happens? I receive strength because I'm allowing what I have hidden in the dark to come to the light. And what I thought would make me appear weak actually is where God meets me with strength. So you need to understand this. Transparency is the key to intimacy. With the Lord but also with others. Man, has the Lord taught me that, especially in the last five years. For the longest time, I operated with this mantra, and part of it's the culture that I grew up in. I don't know. I, sometimes I may want to blame it on my Hispanic roots. I don't know. But for the longest time, I was like, no, 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 my responsibility is to appear, appear strong. Always, even with my wife, to appear strong. Because if I show that I'm weak, then who, what are the people that are following or walking alongside of me going to do? That's how I approach life. And then because we live in a broken world and we're wounded by betrayal or hurt or whatever, my mantra was also, why would I be transparent with you and provide you the proverbial bullets that you can put in your gun to shoot me with later? Like That just seemed counterintuitive to me. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I guarantee you 99.9% .9 of you would agree with me and the other 0.1% just hasn't lived long enough. That's how I live life. That's how I still battle life. And I will battle life until Jesus comes back. But one of the things that God has been teaching me is strength is not found in pretending that you're strong. Strength is found in being vulnerable with God and being vulnerable with others. Galatians 6, 2 says this, bearing one another's burdens. 
It's not a suggestion. It's written in the tense in the Greek in the form of a command. This is God's will. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Intimacy can't happen without vulnerability. Lord, I love you and I want to understand that I can be vulnerable with you because after all, you know it already. And be vulnerable with others. Verse three, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Here's what I've also found in my life, that when I'm trying to keep this veneer of I'm strong, I ain't fooling anybody. I'm not fooling anyone. It's not just vulnerability with others, but it's also vulnerability with the Lord. See, I started with others first, because that's oftentimes harder, but what I've found is if I'm not vulnerable with the Lord, I'm for sure not gonna be vulnerable with others. Jesus, throughout his entire ministry on the earth, and what we are going to see in these passages in the garden is that he demonstrates his need for his Father. And the way that he does that is we see him constantly going to God in prayer and getting alone. It's not that he only relies on his disciples. No, no, no. He also understands vulnerability starts with the Lord. I remember when I went to a counselor, and which that was a major step for me. And I went to a counselor, and I sat down with him, and I just talked about different things. And the guy never really said a whole lot. But I remember admitting one time, I was like, man, I, he's like, are you angry with God? And I remember uh, saying, saying to him, and I struggle, I struggle with guilt and even admitting that because I can see the way that God has provided in my life and I feel like if I say I'm angry at God, I'm like the kid at Christmas who didn't get the gifts that he was hoping to get and so he's in the corner throwing a temper tantrum. That's how I felt. And that counselor didn't say much of, didn't have a lot to say of value. I ended up going to another one. But here's the one thing that he said. Here's the one thing that he said. He said, Johnny, let me absolve you of that guilt. That's all I needed to hear. See, I learned in that moment, God's not offended by me being vulnerable. God's not shocked God's not up in heaven saying, oh, I wonder how I'm gonna keep the universe spinning in motion because Johnny is struggling and anger, angry with me, not to minimize that at all. My point being is that Jesus was vulnerable with his father and that's part of relationship. Let me give you some vulnerable prayers to God that you may struggle with admitting to him, but he wants to hear them. Here's the first one. I'm disappointed with you. Jesus, God isn't threatened by that. Your father isn't threatened by that. Does he want you to stay there? No. But I found I can't move past to the process of what God is doing without first being vulnerable. How about this one? I'm doubting your goodness. Is that you today? God wants to hear it. 
You're like, he already knows it, yeah. But he wants you to say it. Because there's something about saying it out loud and bringing it to the life, light where the Holy Spirit meets us with his strength. How about this? I'm fearful you won't fill in the blank. This is too much for me. I'm overwhelmed. How about this one? Is there another way out? Jesus praised that. We're gonna see that here in a moment. How do I endure the gardens of Gethsemane? Well, let me look to Jesus because what does Jesus do? Man, he is not too weak to be vulnerable with God and others. Hebrews 4.16, when we understand this, we look at this verse in a whole new way where it says, let me with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that I may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Where is the confidence? Why does it say confidence? Lord, I am coming to you understanding that you are big and I am small. And Lord, I'm coming and I'm being vulnerable with you and I'm confident that you aren't gonna reject me. I'm confident that these things that I'm struggling with are not too big for you. I'm confident that you're not gonna be offended by them because when I voice them, what do I receive? Grace and mercy. Let me give you the second way Jesus shows us how to endure the Gethsemanes of life. Let's go to Luke's account in Luke 22. You can turn there quickly with me. Look at verse 41. Let's just peer into this narrative of Jesus in the garden from Luke, the physician's perspective and it says and he withdrew from them that's Jesus about a stone's throw and he knelt down and he prayed saying father if you are willing remove this cup from me nevertheless not my will but yours be done and there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him and being in agony he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood Falling to the ground. Here's the second way. Be submissive to the process God the Father is doing in you. In you. The overwhelming thing that we see Jesus doing in this garden is kneeling and he's praying. Because prayer is the posture of submission to God. More than any other posture, it's prayer. Jesus did this because he was always demonstrating that he was in submission to the Father. It said, Jesus says in John 5, I, John 5, I don't do anything of my accord, but only what is purposed to me by God the Father. In other words, that I understand that my role on this earth is to submit to God the Father, even though Jesus was God. A great diagnostic tool in my own life, and I don't say this to guilt any of us, but just to acknowledge where we are. When I think about my life and I'm like, okay, how much am I living my life in submission to the process that God wants to do in me? I think, how often did I just spend time with the Lord last week and just spend time with him? Talk with them. The 
There's some times in my life where I'm like, not too much. You know what that reveals? I'm not submitting to God the Father in my life the way that he desires me to. But here in one of the hardest moments of Jesus' earthly life, he says in verse 42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That word cup, he's not speaking of a literal cup, but he's using that figuratively on what God has set before him to do. And we oftentimes wonder, well, what, what was the cup? And we have heard Jesus and what he's had, what he endured through pain. There's, there's little books written on that of the medical side of what Jesus had to endure, which is graphic, yes, but just gets us across the love that Jesus demonstrated by providing himself as the sacrifice for our sins through the whippings, through the beatings, through him on the cross and what his body endured. But it's of my personal view that that's not the cup that Jesus was talking about. So much more than that. You say, what do you mean? I think the cup was this. Jesus knowing that he had to be sin substitute. Which meant he was going to be the object of God's wrath. Because after all, if God is holy and God is perfect, then God also has to be just and he can't allow sin to go unpunished. And what we find over and over again in the verses in the New Testament is what I deserve because of my sin is God's wrath, God's judgment. I'm not, I'm not innocent, I'm guilty. And Jesus knew that God's wrath had to be poured out on him, but not just God's wrath for my sin or your sin, but for all of humanity, past, present, and future. And Jesus knew what was awaiting him. And because God can't look on sin, however this worked, as complicated as is, and though we don't fully understand it, and though we understand that Jesus is God, we don't, but when Jesus says, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? Somehow, some way, there was broken fellowship between God the Father and God the Son in that moment that had never existed before and would never exist again, and Jesus didn't know what that would be like. So he's pouring his heart out to his father. He's pouring his heart out to his friends. And he's saying, if there's any other way that I can accomplish this and illustrate my love for the people that I created, God, let there be a way. So much so that it says in verse 44, his sweat became like drops of blood. Many of us have probably heard before, Luke being a doctor includes this because he would have understood that this was a medical condition caused by high stress, excessive exertion. Forgive me doctors in the room, it's called hematohydrosis. Do you know what Jesus' prayers tells me about submission? Submission doesn't mean that I can't ask for the Lord to deliver me out of the adversity. Jesus prayed that. It's okay to pray that. But submission says my prayers don't stop there. Submission says, Lord, 
if there's another way, get me out of this. But if there's not, Lord, I'm going to submit to the process that you want to do in my life. See, submission is this. It's a willingness to walk hand in hand with Jesus through the adversity. If you remember our definition of abide, walking hand in hand with Jesus as he leads the way. Well, you know what? Sometimes he leads the way through adversity. Man, so many oftens I'm, I'm holding the hand with Jesus and I want to let him lead the way. And I'm like, no, no, no. Let's go around this. Lord, let's go around it. God, if there's another way to go around it, but sometimes I got to go through it. And just like I am called to abide with Jesus and to commune with him, knowing that without apart from him I can do nothing, Jesus is pouring his heart out to God and he's saying, I'll walk through it. I'll submit to the process that you desire to do in and through me. Why do I say in him? He was God. But look at verse 43. It said, there appeared to him an angel from heaven doing what? Strengthening him. Remember, 100% God, yes, but 100% human too. And as he's submitting to this process that God has him in, what happens? You have an angel ministering him to give him the strength that he needs. And just as an angel was ministering to Jesus, do you know what I receive on this side of the cross, on this side of the empty tomb? I not only have Jesus praying for me, but I also have the Holy Spirit living inside of me praying for me in the midst of my garden. Romans 8.34 says, Jesus is interceding for me, for you. Romans 8 verse 26 says, the Holy Spirit is praying for you even when you don't know what to pray. All of us are gonna have times of ultimate stress that are going to appear as too much for you. And there will be times that we will appear and feel powerless. But here's the hope as we look in the garden, is that in spite of the pain, in spite of the sorrow, Jesus was in full control of his destiny, even when the opposite appeared the case. And you know what that tells me? Jesus has control of mine. He has control of yours right now. Even when all the facts point to a little limited God or to no God at all, we have a God the Father, a God the Son, and a God the Holy Spirit who controls your destiny who is doing a purpose in you as you submit to him that cannot be done on your own. Philippians 1, 6 says this. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work, put your name, he who began a good work in Johnny will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. 
But the way that I endure the Gethsemanes of life is I say, as Jesus said, Lord, I am going to submit to the process that you desire to do in me. Which leads us to the last thing. Look at Matthew 26, back to Matthew 26, verses 44 through 46. It says, and Jesus went away and he prayed for how many? How many times? The third time. Saying the same words again. What words? Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He said that at least three times. And then he came to his disciples and he said to them, verse 45, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinner. Look at the movement of Jesus. Now in verse 46, rise. It's time to get up. I've prayed if there's another way. I've poured my heart out for the Lord, but I'm gonna submit. Let us be going, my betrayer is at hand. The third way Jesus shows us how to endure the Gethsemanes of our life is this, that we be confident that God the Father has a purpose for you, for me, for us to fulfill. It doesn't make the tragedy any less of a tragedy. It doesn't make the the pain any less pain. It doesn't make the sorrow any less sorrow. But it's me saying, Lord, I've asked you to remove this, but your desire is for me to go through it. Just like Jesus going through it was because of our sin. We live in a sinful world, world, and there's times that the Lord wants us to go through that adversity caused by sin so that we can learn something, so that we can grow, so that we can be stronger in our walks with the Lord, so that we can see that God has a purpose for everything that we endure. And there's confidence that's found in that. Confidence is the result of submission to the Father's purpose. Jesus takes time to ask over and over and over again, is there another way? God, is there another way? But when he knows that this is the way, Jesus stands up and he walks through it. And we don't see him in anything other than a posture of confidence. Write this down if you don't write anything else down. The place of surrender is the place of power. Manufacturing it, being a man's man or a woman's woman and pretending like everything's okay and, 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 and just being more boisterous and putting on a show, that's not a place of power. Surrender to God's process in you and his purpose for you is the place of power. Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians 12 when he says, man, I've realized that God's grace is sufficient for me because when I'm weak, that's when I experience God's strength. That's when I am strong. Now turn to John 18 and we're gonna close it up this morning I'm gonna read verses three through 11 because I want you to see the movement from what we saw in Matthew 26 and in Luke uh, chapter 22 and now all of a sudden in verse three 
we see Jesus in a way that John doesn't describe him because after all, John's going after, no, no, this is the son of God. But look at the confidence of Jesus. It says, so Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So they expected there was gonna become some kind of showdown. But then Jesus, knowing all that would have happened to him, he was in complete control, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? Notice Jesus took the initiative. Jesus was confident. I'm gonna submit to this process and to this purpose. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, what's interesting about that phrase, I am he, the New Testament is written in Greek. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew. But there's a thing called the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so when you see that phrase where Jesus says, I am he, when God meets Moses in Exodus chapter three in the burning bush and Moses asks, who are you? And God says through the burning bush, I am that I am. He uses that phrase Yahweh. Remember this? Some of you have to go back in your memory banks if you've gone to Salem Chapel for a while. That is the tetragrammaton. You remember that? That's the signature that God puts on things that he has promised And the Greek equivalent that's used in John 18, verse 4, is the same that we find in the Greek translation of the the Old Testament when God says that to Moses. See, the confidence that Jesus stands in, they're like, where's Jesus? And Jesus says, I am here. I'm the one who's come. I'm submitting myself to the process. I am submitting myself to the purpose. And I am standing here saying, it is my responsibility. It is my privilege. It is my weight to be Emmanuel so that God with us is not just some aspiration, but is reality again, once again, for my people. And it says that when he says this, they literally fall to the ground. Now look at verse seven. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, Jesus wasn't doing this, but it's hard for me. I'm just going to say this because I feel like we need a little brevity commercial here. This would be Johnny's equivalent of trash talking. Like, there's not better trash talking in the entire. Like, I am he, fall back. Hey, by the way, who are you looking for? Because <laughs> even though you just fell down after I said it, let me remind you once again. But there was no sin in Jesus' heart, though there is sin in mine. Verse eight, Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fill the word he had spoken. Of those you gave me, I have lost not one. Do you even see Jesus care for his disciples? No, 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 guys, we're not about to battle here and have some okay corral here in the Garden of Gethsemane. No, no, no. I'm confident that this is the way that God desires it. I'm submitting to it. I'm surrendering to it. I'm confident that God is gonna work his purpose out. Verse 10, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear, that servant being named Malchus. And Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Jesus was in full control. Jesus 
deliberately chose the Garden of Gethsemane to accomplish God's purpose. How so? What's the significance of that? Let me just give you some comparisons. The first Adam, all the way back in Genesis, began his life in a garden. Jesus, the second Adam, came at the end of his life to a garden. In Eden, Adam sinned. In Gethsemane, Jesus submitted to the process to overcome sin. In Eden, Adam hid himself. In Gethsemane, Jesus confidently presented himself. In Eden, the sword was drawn for separation from Adam and Eve, ever entering that garden again. In Gethsemane, it was sheathed to accomplish the plan for your salvation and mine. Friends, I want you to hear something today. Gethsemane did not end in ultimate tragedy for Jesus. Was he falsely accused? Yes. Was he beaten? Yes. Did he die? Yes. But oh, as we're going to celebrate in a few weeks, he is not dead, he is risen. And that is the hope that we have, that our Gethsemanes will not ultimately end in tragedy either. In the moment, yes. I look across this crowd and I see people that I have had to walk through extreme tragedy that they have experienced. And in the moment, yes. But the hope is that God redeems that for a purpose. There's gonna be times where it's gonna seem like our world's falling apart, but it's not the end. It's not the end. Because Romans 8, 28 that we know so well, but as I look in this garden this week, it gives new, new meaning to me and hopefully to you when it says, and we know that in all things God works for the good not that all things are good, but I know that God works the, for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, even in the Gethsemanes. So what if Jesus, do you need to take to your own garden? Vulnerability? Submission, the confidence that's only found in surrender. I don't know, but I'll tell you what, the Holy Spirit knows for you. Would you stand with me this morning? And man, let's go to our Savior. Let's sing to him. I encourage you to pray to him right now in whatever way the Holy Spirit is leading you to pray and just have this song sung over you if that's what you need. But as we walk out of these doors, let us take hope in knowing that we have a Savior endured, who endured so that we can endure as well. God, we thank you for the example that you have given us in yourself and the hope that is found in knowing that even though we may encounter tragedy and difficulty, that Lord, it is not the end. We praise you in Jesus' name, amen.